Welcome to Gu Dao Jinxing, Walking the Timeless Way, a podcast that digs deeply into the ancient texts of Taoism to uncover timeless wisdom and discuss how to apply it to today's chaotic world. I'm Ian Felton, and I'm joined by my co-host, executive coach, David Wong. Today we're going to talk about the wisdom of the sage and, and how it's kind of a peculiar type of wisdom. And so I want to get right started today. David, would you mind sharing with us a walking the timeless way moment that you've had since last time we talked? Sure. Um, the other day uh, I was uh, walking around the lake and uh, around uh, the uh, evening time. And uh, when I looked up the sky, I see this beautiful, beautiful uh, waxing crescent moon. Mm. And it's a, really a new moon. Um, it's it's so interesting. It's uh, I just kind of watch it for a while. You know, it's silent and serene. And um, what's uh, what went through my mind was, uh, you know, the uh, just. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, China celebrated the harvest moon, the full moon, mm. the moon festival. Zhongshujie. Yeah, Zhongshujie. And um, so now we see this new moon uh, coming out. Uh, it just reminds me of the, you know, the, the lunar cycles and uh, the cyclical nature of things. So um, they're actually uh, in Chinese literature, there was there's a lot of poetry, you know, over the ages, uh, you know, written about the moon. You know, when you think about the the age of the moon, it's like mm. I looked it up, and it's like a four four point five billions of years, oh, you know, wow. since it just started. And uh, in Chinese poetry, you know, those uh, those poets wrote about the moon. Uh, but they also, when they watched the moon, they also thought about, uh, you know, at another time, another age, somebody look up uh, at the same moon. Mm. So when I look at it, you know, I feel this whole lineage of, you know, people and generations, you know, I find it uh, really amazing. So that was a, a, a moment for me. Well, it's a, it's a beautiful sentiment and, it it makes me think of a conversation that I was having earlier this week about how why does society seem to have such difficulty progressing and that it seems like each generation or, or a couple generations, I think each generation struggles with it, but there's a rejection of the generation that came before and in the process of rejecting some of the flaws of um, I'm not, I'm not even sure that we can call them flaws, but just the human condition, things about our wiring as humans that we, we can't escape that wisdom gets thrown out at the same time as that rejection of the, the problems that the previous generation has been responsible for, or, or at least 
um, older on. Mm -hmm. And, and so there's sort of this feedback loop that we're in as, as a species where the younger generation sort of, they can see the problems and kind of feel like, you know, nothing from the past is relevant that it it's kind of like everything has to be reinvented or reimagined or, or whatever. But in the process, all of that wisdom gets thrown out. And so problems that actually used to have been solved, those solutions or those ways of engaging with them also get thrown away in the process. And so when you're talking about this connection to the moon and how time really is, is, is very relative. And, and instead of this way of looking at history as a linear march forward, where, you know, everything from the past is inferior or, or flawed and that everything needs to kind of be recreated looking at it as there's cycles here and and previous generations have dealt with many of the same problems that we're dealing with now and really as a way of of seeing the connection ac across generations rather than it just being this sort of um march forward in time Right. I, I think both intellectually and spiritually, um, it created something uh, kind of interconnection. In, in other words, like say, if you look at it from a problem perspective, like the, as you said, the older, the new problem seems to be really new, but they are really old problems. So mm -hmm. we can learn a lot from how people in other cultures or generations solve similar problems. So uh, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. I mm -hmm. think spiritually for me, uh, when I look at that moon, um, you know, it's, it's not a, just an, an object I'm seeing. I'm seeing the whole sentiments across uh, generations about the, 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 the beauty and also the impermanence mm. of things so that I don't have to feel uh, really like a, alone or lonely. Mm. Yeah, so that's another connection. So that actually provides um, a lot of meaning for me at that moment. It, I hear in that the, the sentiment of listening to the moon. Yeah, listening to it and uh, just contemplating i would say mm -hmm. yeah I, I i think especially in our world when uh you know i turn on the radio and listen and and, and just hear all this uh you know hor horrendous you know news about the uh, killings uh in middle east i think um if i surround uh myself with that news every day uh i will be driven insane so mm. in some way that moon provides, uh, you know, that shining object up above the sky, uh, you know, provides a, another kind of uh, outlet or venue. It's like, oh, oh, I open up the, the window to just breathe some fresh air, you know, from all the, you know, the, the, mm. the, the choking room I'm in. 
I, I think that's there's a great spiritual lesson there that the moon is clearly connected to the earth that it's in orbit around the earth mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. the, there's no denying the moon's engagement with the planet but it's not affected by all of this chaos and and turmoil it's in fact it's seen billions of years of chaos and turmoil on the earth and and yet that connection remains it hasn't rejected the earth it hasn't flung itself away from the earth it it stays engaged with it but also just observes why all this stuff is happening Exactly, exactly. I think when I look at the moon, it feels like I'm looking at at it or maybe her and she's looking at me. So there's a kind of uh exchange uh between me and 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 the moon, you know, just as you said, uh but she's so far away, so there's a distance. It's not like a, we're wrapped up we're we're all overwhelmed by what's going on on earth so there's a distance but as you said that moon you know is a companion of the earth for so many years well i think there's there's clearly some wisdom there and i think there that type of wisdom we can make parallels to the wisdom of the sage which is as i mentioned at the top of the the session today that we're going to talk about chapter 20 in the wisdom of the sage, but first I, I'm wondering if you would be willing to read chapter 20 of Tao Te Ching to us in Chinese. Absolutely. Xiangchu 而我独若疑，我愚人之心也在，敦敦兮，熟人朝朝，我独昏昏，熟人察察，我独闷闷，旦夕其若海，聊夕若无止，众人皆有矣，而我独晚矣，闭，我独异于人，而贵十母。So wonderful hearing you read it and also recognizing, I'm wondering if, if there's something really important that Lao Tzu wants us to know in this chapter, just because it's such a long chapter compared to many other chapters. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm going to read a translation of that and then we can go through this chapter and, and try to see why perhaps Lao Tzu chose to make this one such a longer chapter. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read from 
Stephen Mitchell's. I know it's it's kind of become a favorite of of both of ours, but for for good reason. Stop thinking and end your problems. What difference between yes and no? What difference between success and failure? Must you value what others value? Avoid what others avoid? How ridiculous. Other people are excited as though they were at a parade. I alone don't care. I alone am expressionless like an infant before it can smile. Other people have what they need. I alone possess nothing. I alone drift about like someone without a home. I'm like an idiot. My mind is so empty. Other people are bright. I alone am dark. Other people are sharper. I alone am dull. Other people have a purpose. I alone don't know. I drift like a wave on the ocean. I blow as aimless as the wind. I am different from ordinary people. I drink from the great mother's breasts. So, you know, we we have a lot to, to cover in this particular chapter. There, there's a lot of concepts there, but in general, we can kind of look at it as this is a, a Lao Tzu's painting a picture of the, the sagely wisdom, the the highest level of sage, sagely wisdom, which which ironically sounds like someone who doesn't ha- is powerless, has no knowledge, has no agenda, has no we could almost say free will. So this particular type of of sagely wisdom how does this type of wisdom contrast with our our modern societal understanding of of knowledge and success both in um ancient china when lao tzu wrote this and in our modern time well let me uh, first of all, first of all say about the modern times I think mm-hmm. the way it's uh, portrayed here, uh, what we modern days people will say, you know, this person, this guy is a loser. Maybe what, you know, Hillary Clinton will say the deplorables, the way how it's portrayed. So you can see that how contrasting, how different it is from, you know, what the modern day conventional wisdom say about uh, you know, people, people's worth and people's, you know, values and people's, uh, you know, people's, was the so-called successes. Right. Like we would, our society might say, oh, someone with a PhD in economics knows so much more, their, their, their knowledge is so much more valuable than a, a factory worker. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Okay. How about uh, ancient China? Uh, similarly, similar thing. I think uh, if we look at that from, a, you know, in the historical context, at that time during the um, Lao Tzu's time, it's also when the other important uh, philosophy uh, coexisted 
uh, with Taoism, which is Confucianism. And uh, Confucianism, you know, puts a lot of emphasis on uh, on the society, the the human order, and the hierarchy, and the merits of things. And the merits were defined by, um, I would say, educational attainment, uh, the study of the ancient texts, and then, but that's the one part of it. Uh, really, that thing. Um, you know, eventually will become uh, a way to gain status. Uh, you know, later on, it, it was through, by studying the ancient texts, it was through the imperial entrance examination. But during that time, uh, that hasn't been, that wasn't uh, established yet. But still, during that time, it was the time we uh, in Chinese history is called spring and autumn period. It's before the uh, the warring states. During that time, you know, because of the the breakdown of the um, the old order, which was the Western uh, Zhou dynasty, so there's a lot of feudal feudal lords uh, you know warring with each other. So they want intelligent people, they want people who can become almost like um, consultants to them, like their think tank in order to fight for power. So as you can imagine, during that time, uh, it was those people who were considered to be uh, successful and powerful enough. So it's no, not much different from nowadays, maybe in terms of the specifics or the content of it, but the same thing, uh, you know, was that uh, the same kind of uh, uh, rule of game uh, existed during that time. So really hearing just how those in positions of power and, and influence can corrupt wisdom and, and lead people to corrupt their own wisdom to advance within society when, when, kind of status starts becoming part of the equation. Yeah, I think the if you look at wisdom, maybe you know there's a distinction between worldly wisdom and uh, you know spiritual or uh, divine wisdom. If you look at wisdom that way, and I would say in every age there was a set of the worldly wisdom, you know, at that time and in our days, what Lao Tzu was, you know, thinking more about was the more natural and, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, spiritual wisdom, uh, because, you know, he had no notion of the uh, transcendent uh, power or God. I think that's a great distinction to make that political wisdom and, and spiritual wisdom are not the same thing that this sort of political cleverness is something Lao Tzu talks about a lot and, and is very careful to say, hey, the type of wisdom that I'm speaking of, it, it isn't political cleverness. It's not shrewdness. Mm -hmm. It's not this type of wisdom that's used just to attain a, a higher position in the emperor's room. Right, exactly. So... I, I want to kind of move on past this point a little bit and 
and focus on the part of this chapter where Lao is really painting this picture of himself as, as quite detached from the parade, if you will. He, he talks about it. it. It seems like everybody else is excited and at this parade where he's kind of alone and detached and feels very different from everybody else and sees things quite differently from everybody else. How is this way of being, this de- kind of detached um, sense of, of being in the world, how can we make connections to that, uh, you know, in uh, regarding the pressures of modern society, especially when we're living in an era of social media and these constant pressures of societal expectations, which, which in our lifetime seem to change every day that, you know, there's, um, kind of a new shiny object culturally, it seems like every week and everyone sort of rushes to glom on to that, but then that kind of concept or person gets torn down and replaced with another. And and it just seems like this endless cycle of, of shiny objects that everyone is, is kind of glomming onto. How does this detached way that Lao Tzu is talking about help us deal with this sort of state that we're currently in culturally? Uh, I, w- I would say uh, our time is more challenging uh, in, the, in that just, you know, we're surrounded by all these, uh, you know, uh, sensory stimuli and, uh, you know, the social media and the technology. I mean, basically, you know, we're, you know, part of the system. I mean, the, there's no way to escape, it seems to me. Uh, maybe during Lao Tzu's time, uh, I think he, it seems like he, they're, they're like social groups, right? So he detached him sometimes intentionally from the social groups. So when everybody was, you know, having a feast or celebrating, you know, he was like that kind of a quiet person who, you know, tried to uh, excuse himself. I mean, people may, I, I mean, I can imagine that during that time, people started saying, okay, look at him. You know, he's just not, uh, you know, gregarious or social. But, you know, as a person, he probably has the wisdom to say, oh, you know, I, um, you know, I just choose to be alone. Uh, but for us, uh, I think there are people uh, who are like that nowadays, but I, I think it's probably getting harder and harder to really unplug ourselves. What do you think? Yeah, I think it certainly is just because all of the kind of foundational community centers have been destroyed around the country that there is no town square anymore. There is no, you know, having conversations with your mailman and, you know, your, your grocer and all these people 
everything has become transactional in our daily life. And for the sake of efficiency, we're discouraged from stopping to talk with someone, you know, if they're doing their job. I mean, if, if you start talking to the person checking you out at the grocery store, I mean, you're going to quickly start getting scowls from the people waiting in line behind you. And that impatience is going to quickly be obvious. And so our whole culture has really negatively reinforced connecting with the the people in our lives when we're out in public and, and focusing on it being purely transactional. There's no, I mean, in, in the process of becoming more secular, the, the, the churches that used to be kind of central to community and that sort of thing, those still exist, but far more people don't attend church than, than used to. Um, there's no sort of opportunity for people to have uh, the, the social connection with one another. So what do you have left? Well, if you want to try to exchange connection or thoughts or ideas with people, you have social media, but because of the algorithms that have been put in place to drive ad revenue and engagement, what they've discovered is that what drives the most engagement is when you trigger the reptile brain of people, which is outrage. And so these algorithms have sort of trained our whole society to endlessly scroll through things mm. that get some sort of huge emotional reaction out of us. And, and that isn't the sort of things that are pro-social. It, it tends to be things that are, you know, create more polarization. And so we're seeing a lot of extremes and the environment that we've created and the technology that we've created is at the root of that. And so long as profits are soaring, that's not likely to change because we're also set up as a market economy, which in many ways is just fine. But obviously, as a society, we also need to have limits on on that. But in in our society, as long as shareholders are reaping huge profits, there's less of a concern over the impact on humanity, less of a concern on the impact of our society, of our community. And so that will continue to march forward probably until profits fall, which typically, you know, there's some sort of catastrophe. And, and when it comes to finance and banking, you know, you can have central bank step in, you can print more money and use inflation uh, uh, to get yourself out of it, but you can't inflate your way out of a breakdown of human connection that is is chronic across the entire nation.
So kind of moving on from, from that point in, in this chapter, I want to dig in a little bit more about, you know, that that's place Lao Tzu's thoughts a, a little bit more in time. You, you talked about, um, kind of the situation, um, historically in the different dynasties and that were involved, but can you dig in a little bit more about what the socio-political environment was in China during the time when Lao Tzu wrote this and, and why that might have influenced these perspectives that he has written about in this chapter? His time was a, a time of political and social upheavals. So that's the main characteristics of that of that age. Um, in essence, his time, I think, is quite similar to ours. The old order, you know, was uh, collapsing. The new order hasn't been fully established yet, and people especially the ruling elites, the feudal lords from the, uh, you know, the um, Western Zhou dynasty, because there's no, uh, you know, superpower. At that time, mm. the superpower was the Western Zhou, the, you know, the, uh, the king of the West, Western Zhou dynasty. Mm. Uh, it wasn't powerful enough to call the shots and uh, everybody just, you know, pay tribute to them. It was becoming suddenly becoming a multipolar world. Everybody was struggling for power and to wage, you know, warfare with each other and build alliances. And so if you look at from that way, that's the world we are living in. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's a world of chaos, world of, you know, I think the ordinary people, as you can imagine, were uh, caught uh, caught in uh, caught between all these fights. You know, they want to have a more, you know, peaceful life, but they couldn't because they are forced to, you know, f either fight the wars. So you know, everything is like very tumultu tumultuous and uh, chaotic. So that's the kind of background. Uh, when Lao Tzu, you know, was, you know, uh, trying to think about ways uh, that could, you know, help heal the world or save the world. The parallels are are clear when we we look at how far away we are from the post World War II geopolitical situation when the U.S. was the clear leader in the world. And, and while the U S still is the leader, that dynamic has changed quite a bit. There's a lot of competition going on around influence and, and power and territory. And, and clearly the average person is just sort of at the mercy of all these things out of their control now, our society also is creating a particular type of individualism that wouldn't have been present in the same way in 
in Chinese culture at the time that Lao Tzu wrote this. Um, so that's a clear differentiator, even though on, on the broader, um, kind of looking at the broader picture, those similarities are there. We live in an individualistic society that has its roots in marketing from um, going back in the early 20th century. There's even a, a really good documentary on YouTube called The Century of the Self and, and kind of talks about how marketers figured out how to amplify sort of the the rugged individualism that America was built upon and, and kind of tur- turn it into a way to market to people to get them to to spend more and buy more, which of course creates this endless loop of working to be productive, to increase profits, to buy more stuff, etc. Lao Tzu, his wisdom, it, it, it's sort of this more individualistic wisdom but but can and he also sounds you know kind of alienated and and isolated when he talks about it can you compare and contrast sort of this individualism that Lao Tzu talks about when when you have this um way of looking at things compared to the individualism of modern times um i think if we call all this, uh, you know, what's uh, being discussed in chapter is the sort of, it's a kind of individualism. I would say it's a deeper uh, individualism. It's the individualism that, uh, you know, Emerson uh, used to talk about. That individual connected with the oversoul. Mm. Oversoul means a transcendent being and spirit that interconnects everyone else. Hmm. I think the individualism we're talking about, um, you know, I, I would say feels like more cosmetic, hmm. shallow, and superficial. And uh, and it's like behind that all promotion of the individualism, there's the profit motive. It's a way of, you know, making people feel I'm unique, I'm special. It's more, it's no different like uh, making a baby and, uh, you know, t- you know, like treating a b- baby and the toddlers and say, oh, mm-hmm. you are so unique, you are so special. I think it's, um, I think now you can see it's, um, it's even more amplified through social media. I think until we go back to the Emerson type of individualism, uh, with the substance, uh, that that substance is really the depth of ourselves. It's not the surface of ourselves. I th- I think that's the key difference. And of course, that that superficiality has its roots in desire, and you know, in in our modern culture, being seen as special equates with a lot of attention on social media, which then in our society translates to ad revenue. You know, you can be a YouTube millionaire if you can set yourself apart from everyone, but that individualism isn't 
still isn't a, a deep individualism. It's the superficial kind of way that's all driven to, you know, convert social media attention and into profit. Right. I, I would also add there's a also with the ideology of the rights, you know, entitlement. Mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, we talked about the commercial profit motives is basically you're doing all kinds of marketing to make individual feel like they are special, right? Mm -hmm. They are connecting to their desires. I would say politically, uh, you know, this notion of freedom uh, becoming, it's becoming more and more shallow. At the very beginning, I think the founding fathers and Emerson uh, or Jefferson, they really are talking about the, you know, the educated, the not nurtured and nourished. I mean, if you go to Monticello in uh, in, in in Virginia, you visited the home of Mount, uh, you know, of uh, Jefferson. You can see there's a whole person there. There's the scientific, you know, uh, Emerson. There's the natural, uh, you know, as a gardener of Emerson. So that's the kind of individual they are talking about. So uh, they feel like that is the foundation of a new system, of a new world they are trying to build. But now over the years, that's kind of evaporates. And to our time where the business people, you know, out of the money motives, you know, they try to, you know, promote this cheap uh, individualism. And so are the politicians. You know, they know who, you know, in this culture that freedom is the catchphrase, right? Mm -hmm. So they constantly use that with really as a slow, very, you know, cheap, uh, superficial slogan mm -hmm. and, 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 and say, oh, you guys have the rights to do something. But at the same time, it's all the rights without responsibilities, without the depth. So that's where... I think the both from the political and uh, and the uh, and the commercial uh, sides, uh, there's this force to use people's natural desire for that individualism or individuality that is a natural impulse. Uh, it start just perverted, from, you know, from the end to a means to an end, their, mm -hmm. their ends, not the end of the individuals. I think that's where the, the things start to, to be broken down. Yeah. That people, um, are uh, enough. People aren't aware of how they're kind of being used politically for people that yes. don't have nuance, don't have depth. They just have an agenda and many people are more than happy to kind of be pawns in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, let's dig in then to that kind of deeper wisdom a little bit more. So um, we have the type of wisdom that um, seems paradoxical in, in chapter 20, that there's this wisdom of not knowing, of not, not getting caught up in all the things that people are caught up in, 
kind of being aimless and and drifting along with Dow and just taking nourishment from Dow. How can we do that while still living in a culture and society that has a different perception of wisdom and, and has a lot of social expectations that are being placed on us? I think moderation and balance is the key here. I think um, a lot of times, um, I think there's still value in knowing. You know, Aristotle used to say, we're a knowing animal. I mean, if you look at history, how knowledge has been accumulated and believed, I think we human beings have, you know, with the kind of mind we have, uh, we have that natural impulse to be curious about things, to understand. Uh, but when that curiosity, when that uh, seeking for knowledge gets out of control and we do not recognize the limit of knowing, then that's where problems uh, start to happen. Because it starts to happen because, first of all, we there's a hubris and there's the this uh, false belief that we are all powerful and all knowing ourselves, while a lot of times it's just a matter of perspectives. You know, we're just like the blind man, oh, you know, uh, coming, you know, surrounding the elephant and, mm -hmm. you know, everyone just tells, you know, what elephant is, uh, but just from their limited perspective. I think we're now at a time we, you know, we're so superstitious. I think there was a time that, you know, we're, you know, we're kind of the superstition, superstition and uh, religion kind of mixed and uh, we broke out of that cycle so that we have the scientific revolution. Now the sci science and technology becomes the new religion. You know, we, you know, we have blind faith in their total power. I think that's what uh, uh, Lao Tzu is, you know, trying. He, he wasn't trying to say, oh, have no knowledge. He, he is saying, uh, if you have blind knowledge, if you just have total faith in knowledge, that's when you become trouble, you know, get yourself into trouble. And he's, you know, trying to use those exaggerated words actually to get his point across in this yes. chapter. So, so the solution isn't to live in a bubble or some walled off castle. That's not what Lao Tzu right. is saying. Right, right. I mean, e even going back to that metaphor of the moon from earlier, the moon is fully aware I'm per, you know, anthropomorphizing the moon, but the moon is fully aware of everything going on on the earth. It, it's observing from a very high level, all of the things happening each day. So it, it, it's not like it's blind to that, but it doesn't get so caught up in it that it feels like it has to engage with all of it because of course if it did it, it would just crash in to the earth because it couldn't keep you know that distance and, and obviously the moon exerts quite a large influence on the earth with the the tides and and a, a huge power that the moon has but but yet it doesn't meddle it doesn't get so caught up in all the affairs of the world that it creates this catastrophe 
Exactly. Exactly. I think a a a there's a a term that in executive coaching that、uh, a few years ago that was uh, uh, you know trying to capture、uh, something uh, of uh, leadership uh, is this outsider insider view. You know, there's like research studying how successful an executive in effective change in the organization. What was found out was that a person with an outsider, in both an insider and outsider view, have a better chance.、Hmm. Like, for example, the people who only have outsider view, because a lot of times, company becomes so complacent and the.、Uh, And jaded, and it's hard to change. So the you know the、uh, you know the, so new people, new success, new executives we brought in from another company who seem to be successful to make the change. But unfortunately, that person only has a one、uh, outsider view. So really, is not kind of connected with the the ethos of the organization. So they failed miserably. But For another insider's view, let's say an executive promoted from within, he doesn't have the insider's view, uh, uh, outsider's view. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he over empathized with the existing order, and he couldn't,、uh, you know, make the, the the change needed. So a person who have both, so you know, the similar thing, I would say. Maybe a person, you know, in the world and not of the world,、mm-hmm. could live a kind of a existence as、uh, Lao Tzu was trying to describe here. So that makes sense. You know, we're, we we have just a little bit of time in today's episode, and I, I still want to kind of get into maybe some more. Small level practices that that people can utilize to try to practice this type of、um, being in the world, but not of the world. Chapter twenty. There's mention of mental stillness and a difference in perception between the sage and the common people. How does this relate to modern discussions around mindfulness and? And mental health, and and at the same time, I'm going to pull in、uh, another piece to that, which is the concept of valuing simplicity over complexity.、Mm, okay.、Uh, well, there there are a couple of uh, uh, dimension, right? There are a couple of aspects we're talking about here. So maybe let's、uh, unpack and take one at a time. So. Would you like to me to comment on the、uh, this mental stillness first? Yeah, let's start with men- mental stillness and then segue into simplicity over complexity.、Mm-hmm. I I think a good technique is just to、um, set a time throughout the day or throughout the week to take a to intentionally unplug. Ourselves, I think it's critical because,、um, you know, we human beings are, you know, we're not entirely rational. I mean, there's a lot of thought process going on that we have no control over. 
but the exposure exposure to all these sensory stimuli, I think those if we have a ritual uh, daily or weekly to just to be quiet, I think that over time helps a lot um, in terms of uh, our, um, I mean, at several levels, I would say cognitively, it just uh, declutters and it just get rid of a lot of the noises because when we're having so much of information, it's really overwhelms us. I think, you know, sometimes you don't see, you don't see. <laughs> You don't hear, you don't hear. I mean, you can't be on a on a on a remote retreat, right? Have no access to the phone. You can see sometimes the difference. I would say that's really the key in trying to uh, uh, you know trying to create a little bit of a space between between our mind and the world. Yeah, that stillness can take place and. It doesn't have to be just sitting and meditating. A a a, a daily walk can be yeah. a great way of doing that, even if it's not a long walk, you're 15, 20 minutes. Journaling, same sort of thing, just sitting down with a blank piece of paper and not trying to think or you know, write an essay, which is, you know, a, a more just generating information, but really getting in touch with what's going on under the surface. What are the feelings just underneath the skin that haven't had a chance to see light of day because we've been so caught up in just processing information. And now processing information is necessary, but if that's all that we're ever doing, we're really disconnected with our heart and and spirit, which doesn't it, it's right there it, it hasn't gone anywhere it just hasn't gotten the space to be revealed or or arise yeah i think connected to that is this uh you know uh term uh, you know the fear of missing out the fomo mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of times people are un unaware of because there's the, the craving for novelty, craving for new information. I think the underlying you know, uh, psychological need maybe is just like a fear, like a fear, like what if I don't know about this, right? So it becomes habitual and then it can over, overload our mind. So we have to also to look at that fear and see how rational is it or whether it is like fully justified. I mean, I'm sure there's a, you know, there's certain information you, we need to know just to, you know, to survive, you know, the critical information. But a lot of times it's just the garbage. And I think right there is the main point, which is that difference that Lao Tzu speaks of is an understanding that while most people are trying to conform with a society that in our time is incredibly superficial and, and certainly mm -hmm. was in a different way in the past. Lao Tzu is talking about conforming with Tao, that conforming with Tao 
is not predicated upon um, fear of missing out on mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Be, being in all of these superficial kind of arguments and debates. And that is the true difference. What are we conforming with a superficial society or the deep timeless wisdom of Tao? I think it's, it's also a matter of a, I think it's uh, conforming with the society can become a addiction. You know, we would not taste the stillness and the aliveness of Tao until we spend a time with it, right? Mm. Just the, like mm. what the sentence, last sentence is the great mother. Jin Lao Tzu kind of uh, feed on that Tao and connected with it and uh, just I mean, it's, it must have been an enjoyable experience, you know, to get away from the superficial crowds and spend some with, with Tao. Yeah. So uh, I think a lot of times because people have, don't have that experience, they just don't know what they don't know. So they constantly, you know, it's almost like addiction to the crowds, you know, without breaking, breaking from that addiction, it's so hard to for people to experience Tao, even though they can hear it, hear the word. I think that's a, a great point that we're addicted to this social media society and that addiction is what gets in the way of us drinking from simplicity, drinking from the mm-hmm. timeless, drinking from to use Lao Tzu's words, the, the great mother's breasts. We've got to break the addiction somehow. We have to break it individually. We have to break it as a society. Sure. And only then are we going to kind of regain some, some balance and sanity. Is Yes, yes. Well, thank you, David, for today's discussion and for your thoughts on Lao Tzu's wisdom in chapter 20. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We make this podcast for you and is entirely listener supported. If you find value in our discussions of Tao, please consider making a small donation at walkingthetimelessway.com. We also want to hear from you. Please write to us anytime via the website.